Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of IGN Unfiltered. It is our monthly interview series with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. Sitting with me today is a gentleman by the name of Jack McCauley. Jack, uh, first of all, thanks for joining me. You have an amazing career that I think a lot of people probably aren't even aware of in the video game space, and that's why you're here. Uh, you are the one of the co-founders of Oculus. You... Uh, Design, design the peripheral, the guitar controllers for Guitar Hero, back when that phenomenon took off. And uh, per, something that absolutely touches everybody watching this, you're one of the co-creators of USB. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Which is just like, that's mind-blowing. So we're going to get into all of that. Uh, we've got plenty of time. Appreciate you making the time. Let's, it's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you. Let's start. I always like to start in childhood and see where all this stuff comes mm. from. Uh, I'm, I've got a five-year-old at home, so I'm sort of it's, I'm in that mindset of, is what, I'm, is, is what she's doing and what I'm doing now going to sort of propel her forward? At age nine, uh, you won a nationwide contest and were awarded a Junior Tinker Engineer Award uh, for an original toy design submission. So you were designing toys when you were nine. What was the toy that you that you submitted? Well, the backstory on that is that I forgot about that, and uh, my sister, when my mom passed away, found that stuffed away in one of her file cabinets, and gave it to me. And I framed it and put it on my wall. I vaguely remember that contest, to be honest with you. But I think I modified one of their toys and and took a picture of it or sent it to them yeah. and to, to, for them to take a look at it. But it kind of slips me at this point. I don't exactly remember what it was. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. But um, thanks, yeah. Yeah, that must have, I mean, it will clearly impress them, even if, yeah. you, were, if you were just sort of uh, I, tweaking I th something I th they'd already I done. I think I got a scholarship, too, and I, I don't, oh, their parents probably spent the money on something else. I don't know what happened to it. So uh, you, you developed a talent for math, science, uh, com which, which according to your Wikipedia page, which I know I can't always trust yeah. that, uh, you began to experiment with chemicals, creating explosives, and building gas-powered vehicles, including go-karts and motorcycles that you rode around your neighborhood right. as a kid. So did that mean that all the kids in the neighborhood, that you were, you were uh, the cool guy who, who was the one you wanted to buddy up with so you, so you could ride his, his go-kart and his motorcycle? Definitely on the go-kart. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I was the type of kid that spent... Um, I wasn't into sports, um, but I was the type of kid that spent most of his time reading anything I could get my hands on, especially about technology. Yeah. And it was all nonfiction. I, I read biographies, all kinds of things like that. And um, I actually was interested in chemistry, but I didn't have enough math hmm. to do chemistry because it's an equation, a balancing sure. equation. Yeah, and energy comes out and you mix these things together. So I, I learned that. And this was before I took algebra, so I learned that on my own so that I could mix things together and experiment with it. And I got into a lot of trouble doing that, too. <laughs> um, I don't think it was unusual to hear explosions coming from my yard uh, when I was that age. So uh, that's the, 
that's what I did, and that's the kind of kid I was. Also, um, experimenting with fires, we, we tried to make napalm and all kinds of stuff with my friends. But there were a couple kids in the neighborhood. Most of them weren't turned on by that stuff. They were out playing football yeah. and baseball. There's a couple kids in the neighborhood that gravitated towards that kind of activity. And so I, that's the kind of people I made friends with. I would find those guys that were really interested in doing that and hang out with them. You're, you're basically, it sounds to me like, uh, and I mean this in the nicest way, you're, you're an adult in a child's body. Almost, well, right? You just had very advanced interests. You, you weren't yeah. out there playing G.I. Joes. You were figuring no. out how to blow them up. I was, yeah, I was doing <laughs> things like that. I got into rocketry and building warheads on rockets and all kinds of stuff like that, and it was dangerous. I'm lucky I have all my limbs. One of my friends, one of the guys I hung out with, actually uh, injured his thumb one time when we were explaining with that. We also built firearms. I built a uh, machine gun that I found out later you could go to prison for. <laughs> that went away. Uh, I, I made explosives, mostly explosives. Like I, I, I started experimenting, experimenting with different kinds of chemicals, oxidizers, potassium perchlorate, ammonium perchlorate, all kinds of oxidizers and fuels and mix them together. And, and so they got to the point where they weren't just burning, they were detonating. Oh, About that time, I, my parents kind of like, you know, you got to stop doing this here. You're gonna, you're gonna get us in trouble. Do you have any good uh, blowing stuff up stories? Is is the is the neighbor kid's thumb a good blowing stuff up story? Uh, well, there was um, uh, the chemical was benzoyl peroxide, and somebody stole somebody stole a, a quart or a liter of it from the lab at school, and we detonated that. <laughs> and and when it went off, there was a shock wave around it and a huge white cloud of smoke. And uh, that was one that got the fire department and the police over there pretty quick. So were your parents uh, very liberal, just very, uh, I, you're just yeah. out there, out well, I there blowing up. stuff up in I, the they, yeah. I mean, they seem like they're, in all seriousness, just extremely encouraging people. Well, I had, um, you know, I do a lot of stuff with education now that I'm retired. And um, I, I donate money to education causes. And, you know, there's this period when you're growing up where you got nurtured. And you're, everyone, I think, in my view, everyone's born with the same brain. I mean, everyone's kind of smart from the birth. It doesn't matter who they are. And then there's a, a point in time where that preening process where your brain is taking shape and forming who you are and what you can do, it's, it's, it's sort of modifying itself. Well. I got the nurturing from my, my mother in particular, you know, who provided me with the things that I needed and wanted to do these things. Yeah. Now, she didn't go out and buy you know, oxidizers and things like that. <laughs> I went out and got that on my own, but she did provide this sort of nurturing environment and toys and things like that. I got a steam engine um, when I was probably about nine or 10, a, a working steam engine. You put these little biscuits in it and lit them on fire. And why, I mean, I, of course, put, um, I put alcohol in the boiler to make it run faster, and, and it caught fire. But like Back to the Future 3. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that, yeah. So, um, but I did get that from my, my parents. Now, as far as parenting, I'm not sure that they parented me very well, <laughs> you know, doing that kind of stuff. But uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a kind of, it was, you know, this is back before computers, and so yeah. if kids were going to do something interesting, you, now they do it on a computer, a machine that, you know, a programmable machine. We didn't have those back then. You would have to do it with something mechanical. And um, so I, I migrated in, into transportation. I decided that I need to get back and forth to school. Of course, I was 14, 
And so I needed a way to get back and forth to school, and I didn't want to ride a bike. Yeah. So I built a little motorcycle that I could ride to back and forth to school. I bought the frame and put the tires on it, got a motor lawnmower engine in it, and wrote, and I got promptly got in <laughs> trouble for that. And I also built go-karts and all kinds of riding vehicles with gas engines and stuff like that. I just love doing it. And, and I took that into adulthood. I still do that. That's I don't cool. do the blowing up stuff or the machine guns or anything like that. Yeah, you were telling me before we started filming, you're wearing a McLaren pin. Yes. Uh, you toured the McLaren factory, and you're building, yeah. you're building a custom, you're building a, your own car in your garage. That's right, yeah. I have... Um, Which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, yes. So I, uh, when I left Oculus, um, before I went to Oculus, between Red Octane and Guitar Activision and Oculus, I built another car. And I took this car and I put... BMW 850 V12 in it and completely modified the engine transaxle and said I'd never do that again. It was so much work. And then I started Oculus, and as soon as I left Oculus, I started another one. And this car is different. This car is a British marquee sports car from the 60s, but it looks very modern. And I did uh, the chassis and, and all the suspension components in my shop. I have a full machine shop and R&D facility with, with staff. So we built the car chassis in there, and then I bought the body in England, and I'm going to fit the body on the chassis. But what I was, what's interesting about this car is that it's computerized completely, and I have three Nexus tablets on it. Yeah. The one in the center is a standard gauge set, and they're sort of vintage-looking gauges. We right. finished that, and the left and right are rear-facing cameras that nice. I can see the entire track <laughs> behind me. It's a race car. It's not going to be street legal. Right. And then I used a Chevrolet, I bought a Chevrolet engine and a Porsche transaxle, inverted the transaxle, and, and it's out of a GT3, which is a late model Porsche, Porsche yeah. race car. And then bolted that together and then machined all the parts in-house and did all the vehicle dynamics. Everything was done in-house. Uh, little tiny parts. We have a, I have a big Polyjet Connect uh, 3 printer. I print everything in, in plastic and fit it, and then I do it in metal. So I had to learn solid work, so I spent a good four months getting competent on solid work, yeah. just competent. It's, it's funny, you mentioned earlier how you know, kids do everything on computers now. And it's yeah. It almost sounds to me like if you were a kid now or in the last yeah. t 10 or f everything you would have done would have been like you'd be an app developer. Like it's all, yeah, like that's the right. app developers of now are yeah. the... Are the engineers like right. yourself of well, when i was 18 the the, the trsa the tandy trs80 computer came out and that was uh, about the same time as the apple 2e but i t radio shack was down the street so i got i bought i got a trs80 yeah and i started writing basic software on it just to just to learn it so i could teach it to myself but i had some of that but yeah back then it, we, you know we didn't have a lot of options with computers and there were no there were no microcomputers there were mini computers uh, PDP-11 and VAX and, and DEC mini computers and things you had ac you could get access to through school and sure. play a lot of punch cards, um, but um, that everyone having a computer didn't exist and not no one knew how a computer worked. I mean, how does it work? Is it intelligent? You know, what does it do? And then we find out later, no, they're dumb. They're just you know, <laughs> they're dumb as a brick. So, um, but yeah, that's that's what I that's what I did and. And, and then when I turned 18, I got a, a scholar, another scholarship, a full scholarship to uh, Berkeley and uh, through the Navy. Uh, I, got a, I got a job there as a technician and uh, because I, get, I interviewed it, I, got a, I found about it about the junior college. I looked on the job board. I found a job as a technician needed and I went and applied yeah. and I got hired. 
And I learned their systems, and I got a, they gave me a scholarship for, for basically coming up to speed pretty quickly, and they, I think they were impressed somehow with it. But I already knew a lot of the things, yeah. that, the principles behind it. So I got a, a scholarship uh, to Berkeley, and, and with including my living, a full scholarship there. Nice. So, yeah. So that's, so your, your parents clearly <laughs> did something right if, the, if you got the yeah. free ride to college. I'm not sure, you know, looking back now, I mean, when you... You look back at your family life when, as you get older, and you kind of see the flaws and the problems and, and, and that thing. But in my case, I got everything I needed in the nurturing, you know, uh, uh, that I needed at an early age. Yeah. And also, I went to a different school system. I went to school system. I was in Holland, so hmm. I went to a school over there. I had my primary education. Came back to the states, and so I probably had a, a different kind of education there than I got here, uh, to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the. So if, if I have it right here, you, you sort of touched on the Navy. The, you were at the U.S. Navy Nuclear Power School? Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, I went to, I, yes, it is. I went to uh, uh, Nuclear Power School at Mare Island Naval Shipyard in training there. I didn't even know that was a real thing. So how yeah. do you end up there? How, how does a kid? Yeah, b- because there wasn't a slot in electrical engineering for me for the scholarships. So I was in mechanical engineering and nuclear engineering. And then I switched to electrical. Yeah, okay. electrical engineering was impacted, mechanical and nuclear were not. So I was went into the mechanical and nuclear engineering, and then I transitioned to, into electrical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what it, so you ended up with a job with the Department of Defense? That's right. After that, yeah. What, what did you end up doing for old Uncle Sam, <laughs> if you can even say? Well, uh, yeah, I can. I can say I um, I worked in in refueling uh, nuclear reactors uh, with the Navy, and I worked in the refueling operations. So basically, they bring a ship in to port yeah. and and pull the reactor core out and refuel it and put it back in and do maintenance on the ship. That's where I worked. And that's al- that's almost out of a video game. Like yeah. we have to we have to get the get to the core without without ruining anything. And that, the other thing is, most people didn't. That was in the Bay Area. That was right in the Bay Area. No, no, most people didn't know that they actually did that kind of thing there. But that's what wow. they were doing there. They're not in. They moved it to Bremerton. Uh, so then you move into the private sector. Yeah. Uh, and so by the you're credited on Wikipedia as being the creator of the first scrolling feature on a computer mouse. Yes. Now, does that mean the mouse wheel itself or another? The mouse wheel, the scrolling wheel that you have on the front of the mouse. You yeah. invented the, mm-hmm. the mouse wheel. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, we use that, every, every, literally everyone yeah. here, everyone watching this uses yeah, a scrolling mouse. Uh, Does the idea just hit you that, hey, why should I have to keep? Well, <laughs> it's not used in the way that I intended it to be used. Really? I, I intended it to go forward into the into an application. Oh, interesting. So you can go X and Y with the cursor, but I wanted to go into it. Hmm. So the only, you know, you can use a keyboard for that, but uh, that's what my intended feature, but they use it for scrolling on, you know, all kinds of things but other than that. So it, it this is in the days when it was a PS2, I don't, yeah, PS2, PS2 controller, yeah. PS2 port, uh, port rather, yes. Yeah, yeah, this, and, it, and it was a BIOS call. That was like box. a nine pin mm-hmm. serial a connection. DIN connector, they call yeah. it, DIN. So that, uh, I, I examined that on a scope and found out that there was dead space there, and then I could stick stuff in the dead space. And then, and that, that dead space made it all the way through the BIOS, because it goes through the BIOS on a PC, the, all the mouse interrupts, and then comes back up into, into, the, into DOS. It was just DOS. Oh, yeah. And then uh, 
I discovered that if I stuck stuff in the packet and fake, just created a fake mouse and then stuck stuff in the packet that it got returned to the application space. So I could stick stuff there from the controller itself and it would, it would return back. So what I did was I put, um, I put a, um, an increment-decrement counter in there. And when you went forward, it would increment, went backward, it decrement. Yeah. And then I, that would be returned to the application space. It, so that's what the goal was with this, the mouse that I created, is to be able to, to go de in, in and out of a game and also to find out if I could actually do it. And right. I could do it. Um, and, but it depended upon the BIOS. I think it was Phoenix, the, one of the BIOSes didn't work well. But, um, so that's what I did. And it, that's what was the intention. So what did I do with this? I built it and kind of set it aside. And then it shows up later. But it wasn't mine. It was somebody else either someone saw it or came up with a similar idea. I'm right. more inclined to believe that some people think, you know, like me and would, you know, naturally yeah. assume to make something like that. So, yeah, I still have the thing, too. It's, it's uh, broken, but so that was the intent. You invented the, the mouse wheel, yeah. but you do or do not have the patent I on didn't it. patent it. I didn't know about patents. Oh. Does, does that, did that haunt you at night? Yes, it did. Because <laughs> I could see it totally would. I mean, yeah. Well, from then on, I always patent things. From yeah. all the inventions I did after that, I, or any major thing, I would, I would draft a patent or keep a very careful notebook. I did keep a notebook on it, but I would keep a very careful notebook and get it witnessed, and that's not really acquired anymore by the patent office. But So that if there were any contention, it's, it's not who gets the patent, who invented it first. Right. That's the way the law works here in the United States. So it's first invented. And so you keep a careful notebook, and I did from then on on yeah. anything I did, including stuff at Oculus. So. Do, do you ever, I don't know, if you're ever, do you ever just like a friend's house and they're on their computer and scrolling on their mouse wheel and just go, I invented that? No, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to write They, they always say, yeah. <laughs> um, so another incredible one is USB. So yeah. you were one of the co-inventors of the USB. The specification, yeah. Specification. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there has to be a story there. Literally everyone watching this uses USB on That's a right, daily yeah. basis in some way, whether your mouse or keyboard is plugged in via USB, whether you're plugging in a flash drive. Uh, what was, what was the, uh, the genesis of USB and what drove you to, to create it? So, uh, if, if you want to plug a peripheral into a PC, You've got two options, two ports. Right. Well, you've got a serial port. This is going back into the 90s. I'm with you. That's, PS... I was lucky enough to be to come up with computers in the early you know 90s. That, yeah. So, I'm, you know, I don't. Yeah. That, do, I, I can speak DOS with you, and I can hang on a few of these yeah. topics. If you wanted an input device like a mouse or a keyboard, you had two PS2 ports and a serial port usually, right. or two COM1 and COM2 serial ports, and you can plug a device into one of those. But that's it. Four. With USB, we wanted to be able to expand that to 128 devices. You could plug up to 128 devices into it. And so that's what USB is about. And that's, I worked for Logitech, and that's why they're interested in it. Plus, you could put speakers into it if, depending upon the nature of the bus speed on the mm -hmm. USB. You could, you could plug things into it, and they automatically get recognized and enumerated in the system, and drivers loaded and functioning. Yeah. That's the goal of it. And... Um, so, but when it first came out, um, this was on Windows, um, late Windows 98 and Windows ME. This was a long time ago. It, you know, it was kind of, didn't work quite well and was a little bit off. And, and so, but that's the goal of it is to provide a way to input multiple devices into a computer and have driver. You don't have to write a driver for it. When you, when you build a 
the peripheral for a system, you have to write the middleware driver for it or the application space driver yeah. for it. The goal of, of HID in particular was to be able to auto-enumerate and read the descriptors out of the device and then create a framework around it to access the data from the device. That's, that's what HID is. So that's, in, in, in that's, why we, that's why USB is created. It's a way to put cell peripherals into a computer and create peripherals for it, printers, you know, controllers, light guns, whatever you Everything. want. Everything. Everything, All yeah. kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And this was at Logitech. I'm not the only one at Logitech that worked on it, but I worked primarily in the HID stuff, which was my thing, was input devices. And so I was primarily involved with that. So do you have the patent on USB, or is your name on it? It's a consortium. It's a .org, okay. so it belongs, it's an open source, not open source, but it's kind of an open platform thing. You join the consortium, and you could produce a peripheral for, for a USB device, and you could put their little USB logo on it. Yeah. yeah. Did, I mean... You must, of course, use USB as well. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. Does it do you, at this point? Do you ever? Do you just take it not for granted? But do you ever stop and think, "Oh yeah, I made that. I helped make that." Or um, I, I, I do, and and um, uh, but most of the groundwork was laid for that was laid in 1995. It was pretty much done as you see it now, uh, particularly with input devices and how they're described to the system. It was was finished back then, and well, I was working on that too. I mean, I was working on that. So uh, it hasn't changed much. Am I impressed with it anymore? No. I, I'm also irritated by many of the things that other people, you know, other people are irritated with it. Um, I was going to ask you, how come I always seem to put in my, my USB device the wrong way at first every time? I do, too. <laughs> was there a, yeah. Is there an insider tip for me that I will, so I will stop doing that? The, that connector is an audio connector. It's, it was designed for patch cords on audio devices. That's where it comes from. It's, an R, it's from RCA. And we used it because it was available. Right. And it's terrible. I mean, you can put it in up. You can't. You, you turn around. You plug it in. You have to look at the port to plug it in. Yeah, it's it's annoying. <laughs> uh, so then you move on into working with video game companies. Let's yes. get into the gaming side of things. Yeah. Uh, was that sort of a coincidence? You know, a coincidence that you end up from. Uh, heading that way, or did you did you have any personal interest in video games? Well, the story goes back further than that. Okay. Uh, because of my experience with input devices and, and, and peripherals, I have built other peripherals for, for computing platforms before. But um, my heading in the direction of gaming, I started out in the PC gaming side. There was not much in the way of console stuff back then. I mean, there were, you know, Nintendo. And right. yet, you know, the, the, it, was, it was a very different world whereas, mm -hmm. compared to now, where, PC, where PCs and yeah. consoles are, are just yeah. little cousins, basically. PCs started to become more powerful than the consoles. Yeah. And so it was leaning in that direction. So I built or invented a way to connect, you know, um, multiple devices to um, a PC and place the PC inside of an arcade cabinet. So inside your arcade cabinet, instead of having a custom board there, you yeah. just buy a PC and put it in there. But then the PC has to, you know, Windows 98 and Windows NT aren't all that stable and they crash, so it has to be a way to reset it and restore it from where the starting point was in the application and so forth. So we built all that in, into it. So that was my foray into it, okay. and that was a nice little business I had there. Sure. Selling that thing. I sold so it. Arcades just, were still very viable at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were. And, and that's kind of how... how uh, you know, I, I just migrated into that, but I had been into it before that for a long time. It's just, it to, with any effort, I leaned away from, you know, just doing anything anyone asked me to do to doing just that. So, um, and 
and you know, I also I also did a lot of hacking and stuff like that and virus. I wrote viruses and things like that for a long time because I knew a lot about the internals of Windows. You wrote viruses? Yes, I did. Yep. As a sort of a white hat situation to help then, what were you so doing writing viruses? I, I can't tell you who it was, but I was hired by a company to write a virus that lit, was undetectable in a computer. And so you, this virus would, would live inside the machine and you could never find it. It would move around. It would morph into something different and change what it looked like. And most virus scanning systems look for particular markers in, in the code of a virus, but if the code can change itself, it can't be recognized. So I wrote, I, that, I did that um, for a company, and uh, it was used used for some stuff. But um, huh? Yeah. Do I have it right now? No, it's dead. It, it, it's it, dead. Yeah, <laughs> it probably it ran on Windows NT and Windows ninety eight, and so it, it doesn't exist anymore. It wouldn't run anymore, I don't think. So. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad yeah. it's. Uh... It's interesting that you know I was thinking about that on the way over here. I wonder if, Win if Windows Windows 10 is radically different than Windows NT. I don't think it is. I think the underpinnings of Windows 10 are the same as Windows NT. It wasn't XP built off of NT or? Yes, I... it was. Yeah, yeah, power then, management. Yeah, added power management. So there there is a lineage there, I mm -hmm. think. From right. Yeah, but the groundwork for Windows NT. Is as problematic as as Windows 10 is now, and, it, and the file system's terrible, and all these other problems. But it, it's all the same foundation built in you know 1994, right. starting starting way back in the 90s. So I still can claim that I know a lot about when the internals of Windows 10 because it's exactly the same thing. But um, yeah, th this this thing with this virus was designed to live on a computer and be undetectable, and and um, it it can hide and move itself around. And then if it's detected, it can tell when it was detected, it would erase itself from the system. So it would disappear. <laughs> so, yeah, but it, you know, it, uh, it ran, ran, and so in, in the process of doing this work, I also learned a lot about internals of Windows, the core part of it, the Windows kernel, which is the ring zero, yeah. which is the thing that's the, low, it's the lowest level, layer of software in Windows um, and shares one, you know, one virtual address space, one address space there. So. I learned a lot about that, and I knew knew it intimately. All the all the, I I I um, disassembled all the drivers and inspected them and and set breakpoints. And we used this program called Soft Ice. It's not around anymore, but you could stop Windows and sneak around in it. It was really cool. But so is that, I, is that mm -hmm. just kind of how your mind works? You like to sort of take things apart, whether even yeah. whether they're physical or or, or yeah. virtual in a sense? If, if there's some mysterious behavior of something, I'm really intrigued by it. Like, I can't understand why it's behaving a particular way. I got to get to the, I just got to find out why it's doing that. And so that's, that. yeah, that, I, I do have that sort of bent to, to, to hack into stuff yeah. to find out the how. The engineer's mind. I guess so, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the, the arcade cabinets and building mm -hmm. sort of the PCs to run arcade cabinets. Did you have a favorite of those games that uh, that you that you built, you know, PCs and cab, you know, and uh, to run in arcades? Yeah, um, you got to try them. Yeah. Try the merchandise from time to time, right? Yeah, uh, there used to be a company called um, uh, uh, Global VR. I remember them. The yeah. golf, they make the golf thing. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, that, golden was that Golden Tee Golf. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think we might have one out okay. here actually in our in our lobby. <laughs> Um, I, I liked their games, especially since they licensed stuff for me. So um, I don't, I don't know that I had a, a DDR is fun. I actually, that's one of the first games that I was actually decent at on an arcade game. Yeah, you, so. you and you designed the uh, the dance interface the, for that, sort of the the, the yeah. physical hardware. So so 
that leads into the red octane story, and yeah. I can talk about that. And that's exactly where I want to go. Here. Okay, good. Um, so this is this is 1999. I saw DDR at a trade show. They used to have a big, giant trade show for arcade and entertainment stuff, and it was cool because they'd have like a Ferris wheel set up inside of a stadium, and and people selling all kind of entertainment peripherals. And I saw DDR there, and, I'd, and, and as usual, I'm skeptical on things like that. And I said, well, it takes up so much floor space, yeah. and, and you can put two cabinets in there and get twice as many quarters in. And, and I was wrong. I mean, people, there were contests, and people were oh, playing. Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it was, I think, f used as fitness in schools at yeah. one point. That's how big DDR yeah. got. On YouTube videos, there's like, there's like DDR pros, you know, like competitive DDR guys. So, so uh, I saw that and I thought, well, that's, that's really cool. Um, and maybe I can make something for that game or something like that. Yeah. Well, long story short, um, fast forward a few years when I got um, recruited by, I worked for a, a bunch of game companies. I worked for Take-Two, um, had a hardware division and we built hardware and uh, I built light guns and all kinds of things for them. Um, and other companies like, there's a company called Mad Cats and the sure. PDP Pelican. Yep, still still uh, big today. Yeah, I built, I built the Silent Scope light gun and all, light guns, the, did the light gun for X, the original Xbox, uh, Thrustmaster oh, yeah, light gun. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I did that light gun. I, I built light guns, a lot of light guns. And, and then I read, interesting, I read on reviews, and I go, what, whatever happened to my Silent Scope light gun? I read the reviews on Amazon, they were terrible. <laughs> 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 it doesn't work, it's jittery. <laughs> So, but um, yeah, I think it sold pretty well, and so, um, and and that led me to get to know uh, a guy named Kelly Sumner, who was at that time the CEO of Red Octane, and and they brought me in originally to fix their dance game. Interesting. They had a dance pad, and they had a clone of the Konami game, basically written by a company called Harmonix. Now. <laughs> Red Octane's a video game rental business decided to publish a game that had a hardware peripheral yep. attached to it. So, and the pad had a few problems. To make a long story short, we got in a little bit of legal trouble, and so we couldn't produce the game, the pad game. So, but we had this engine that could spew music out of a off a PlayStation 2 DVD, yeah. and then time it was synced with the screen because that's basically what DDR is, mm -hmm. and. And what are we going to do with that engine? Well, so many company comes up, and it wasn't me, comes up with the idea. Well, let's, Guitar Freaks is a really popular game. It's in Japan, Japan yeah. yeah, huge. But the music stinks, and it's J-pop. And you listen to it, and you go, ah, you want to plug your ears. Why don't we make a demo game with a Guitar Freaks guitar? We've got this dance engine. We'll get Harmonix to do the demo game, and we'll try it out and see what the feedback is. So Kelly drags me. This is at CES about um, 2005 drags me over and he goes, you gotta see this. And so he takes me back there. And I looked at it and I saw these two guys, Charles and Kai, you know, the founders of the company, and they were so enthusiastic about it and I just didn't see it. I just thought, that thing's, it's not, it's not, it's not gonna do yeah. well, I don't think. So uh, how wrong I was, um, they took it, they hired me, basically. On, I think As it was the on chief the engineer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the I could build those peripherals in my sleep. They're really simple. That's basically a PlayStation 2 game controller chip sort of. I reversed that chip. Yeah, they don't need to know that, right? Just right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm the chief engineer. I'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, basically, it's, it's really simple. And I already had the code running for PlayStation controllers, PS1 and PS2 uh, game pads, DualShock pads. I had all the intellectual property for that. It was a really just, a, you know, I could do it in a couple days, literally. But, yeah. Um, 
so they hired me and they had already engaged another company to build a controller using a, a PlayStation 1 uh, chip, which runs on a PS2. And they had already engaged another company to do that, but they brought me in and, and uh, to build all the peripherals for them, design and build. And for design for manufacturing, which is a big deal. I mean, it's, it's easy to design things. The kids are doing it all the time and in their trailers and in front of their mom's house or whatever it is, they're building <laughs> stuff all the time. But to, to get it so it's actually mass producible. It's very for cost and all that stuff. That's challenging. It's, it's very difficult. And so the, I already had a pretty good handle on that and knew how to do that. And so they hired me to do that. And I ended up building uh, the first drum set. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I built that on my own. I did that. That was a side project. I said, I'm going to build a drum set. <laughs> I think it's really cool to play this with drums. And so I built a full-blown MIDI drum set. It was MIDI. And then we took the MIDI and then transformed that into PS1 and PS2 port output. Okay. So I just did a MIDI to PS2 chip, glue chip, put it on there. And so basically it was a full-blown MIDI drum set. You can, we hooked it to a synthesizer. It was funny, when we were debugging um, World Tour, we actually bought Yamaha drum sets with that MIDI box that I built. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And that's what we use for debugging the game. That's the peripherals cool. weren't finished yet, so right. we had to do this. We bought the, the, the Yamaha, the V-drums, the Roland V-drums, and then, you know, you could play the drums. And, and so, anyways, that's what we used to do that. So I built a full-blown mini drum set. I took it into... Uh, Charles's office, one of the founders, and I go, hey, look at this, you gotta see this, I finished this, you know, it's got all these slides on it, it's just like a, it's like a mixing console. And, um, and I don't think they were that, they didn't really get it. And then all of a sudden, I think Harmonix came out with drums. With Rock Band. With Rock Band, yeah, yep. now they got it. Now we gotta have drums. So this was in 2006 I built the drum set. It was way before. Uh, yeah, Rock Band was 2000, late, fall 2007. That's right, yeah. But they had, they had, yeah, they had, the, they had their own problems. Rock, uh, harmonics and Rock Band had a lot of problems with. Yeah, the the quality of their <clears throat> first generation yeah. peripherals were we, not that great. We had zero percent returns. They had fifty percent returns. They didn't have enough experience building those uh, devices. They didn't. They hired a, a. It's a long story. I know what happened, kind of, and in 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 what the mess was and all that, and it just was a bunch of bad choices. They just didn't have enough experience to do that. We had. At Red Octane, one of the most experienced guys, um, this guy I work for, that you could hire, you know, he, he knew exactly how to do it. Who to, call, who to call, who to contact, who was good, who wasn't, how to get the engineering done, and all, all of those things. And, and so and I'm talking about the contract manufacturing and the production engineering right. on it. So uh, 
anyhow, we, they showed it, that the, they, go, to go backwards, they showed me the demo, I didn't think much of it, then they took it to Fry's, and there's a line out the door of people wanting to play it. <laughs> and right then I, kinda, I said, okay, I, I'm in, you know, I know it's going to work now. And about that time, I noticed some strange occurrences, like people were talking, and, and it seems like we were going to get bought, which was a good thing, because to produce... Cash in, out, right? Well, it's, shape. you know, if we would have stayed, if we had the financing, we could have produced it, published it ourselves. But we didn't, I don't think we really had that kind of capital. You need right. someone with big capital. True. If you got a six million piece order, you're talking about $40 million. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a lot of money. So uh, Activision came and acquired us and, and published the game and, and then uh, provided the funding and some management infrastructure. We were moved to a different building we were like in a warehouse and we were moved to a different building. And, um, and then it was just, from then we just started producing version after version after version. Were you, did, it, did it make you sad at all that uh, you weren't working with harmonics anymore? Because, I, I mean, yeah. from my gamer perspective, yeah. uh, particularly as the, the two franchises sort of diverge from that point, harmonics really seemed to get the software yeah. side of it uh, better than... Yeah. Uh, any anyone else Activision ever got yeah. to do the software side did. You know, uh, I have my own feelings on that, and and uh, we were told um, by Harmonics that no one could get uh, the music off the DVD on the PS2 and sync it with this with the sound of the television. No one could do that. Well, when Activision bought us, we continued with them, but we never soft. They're in, they're yep. in LA. Yeah, they took over. Tony Hawk, those guys took over and basically knocked it out in about three weeks. Now, whether or not the content is better, the entertainment value is better with Rock Band right. or Guitar Hero, I mean, there's some data, data about that, but on the technical end of it, I think you know, Activision pretty much nailed That's fair. Sure. Nailed, nailed that pretty quickly. So it seems like when, when that happened, and I didn't know enough about what, they had re rewritten all the middleware in the, on the PS2 to get access to the DVD player. I don't believe that we had to do that, but for some reason, Neversoft was able to get the technical part of it straightened out pretty quickly. Excuse me. So then uh, you end up moving on, and you end up being a co-founder of Oculus. Yeah. Uh, where you again served as the chief engineer yeah. at Oculus. Uh, what do you remember about? I mean, it's, it was only four years ago. Like yeah, right. it's, that's what's crazy is where where Oculus is now. They were only founded four years ago. Yeah. What do you remember? Any any sort of Good memories or stories yeah. from the real early days? Like, did everybody oh, yeah. think you were nuts? Or, you know, what, what, what was it like back then? So, the, Brendan Iribe got in touch with me from people at Activision. I worked in, in as well as doing the design work in Guitar Hero, and, and I also did the intellectual property work at Guitar Hero, too. I was in, worked in the IP in the intellectual property department because I'm an inventor. Sure. So, I got, uh, I worked with a guy there, and I'm sitting in my my lab over, you know, in, in the East Bay. I'm sitting in my lab, and I get a call from this guy, and he says, hey, um, this guy's going to call you, and he wants to talk to you about something he's working on. You should see it. It's pretty cool. And I said, okay, what's his name? And he goes, it's, it's, it's Brennan. Okay, Brennan. So Brennan calls me and says, hi, I'm Brennan Rebe and uh, Trexler, and uh, can, uh, you know, can I come on and show you this? I want to meet you. And, and, and so-and-so says you're a really good hardware guy. And I said, okay. So he made an appointment, came and saw me, knocks on the door, and I see them sitting there. I saw him. And I go, oh, no. He had something in his hand. He brings it in. <laughs> and, uh, and he's very, very uh, 
polished uh, presenter and very, very articulate. And he's a very smart guy, you know, and he's obvious to me he was. And a great uh, pitchman hands this thing to me. I put it on, and I just went, wow, that's really good. Yeah. It's very profound. And, uh, but I was, you know, I'm like skeptical of the people because it's all, and you're in business, it's important to be hooked up with the right people. You can, this guy I formerly mentioned that worked at Red Octane, if we wouldn't have had him, I'm not sure it would have worked very well. He's a super seasoned guy. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, they go, and he goes, and Brennan goes, and we're putting it on Kickstarter. I go, what's that? And he goes, it's crowdfunding. <laughs> I go. I wouldn't do that because that's not what we do. You know, you work for. Yeah, I work you for EA. Find and I, a venture capitalist or somebody, right? Yeah, or or you you find a partner or something. But that's what they wanted to do. And I said, yeah. okay, we'll give it a shot. And so he goes, and we're filming at your at your office at your f place. And I go, oh, okay, you're gonna film that here. Why do you want to film it here? And he goes, well, I don't know. He just liked the idea of filming it. So they filmed the Kickstarter video. They launched the Kickstarter campaign and immediately sold ten thousand of them. Yeah. And so I said, oh, that's pretty interesting that they would sell that much of an enthusiast product because it's, it's for enthusiasts. These are... Sure. Not cheap. Not cheap, no. And, and then uh, Brennan goes, and, and you're going to build it for us. And then, so I said, I'm going to build it. And he goes, yeah, you're going to build it. So I went to China, and we built some prototypes over there, shipped them back, went back and forth a bunch of times, and we finished the thing in 90 days. It was literally Whoa. finished from start to finish, from whiteboard to manufacturing in 90 days. I, I really pumped on it. It was very difficult. Had, yeah. you, had you spoken to John Carmack back then? I mean, he was still technically at id, but he, he obviously, he, he had been taking an interest in VR. He, yeah. I, I used his sort of prototype mm -hmm. uh, with, a, with a version of Doom 3 that he had hooked up back in, gosh, I think that was 2013. It, is, is John Carmack a guy that you've that you've spoken I, to? I know John, years? yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. he is at Oculus now. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Is he the... Is, you're clearly a very intelligent person, yeah. but is John one of the smartest people you've ever here's, come across? Because here's the thing about a guy like he blows John. me away. Is, is that his output is 10x that of a normal person. You take a programmer, educated programmer, and you put them in, they program at one rate. John is 10 times faster. Now, why is that? Well, he's very smart, for sure. There's no doubt about his smartness, but he's got so much experience. If he needs to do something, a piece of code to do something, he can pull it out of his memory and type it in, and it works because he's done it before. Yeah. Now, was John always that fast? Probably not, but he's always probably been on the upper end of the speed. It, in, in this business, it's all about speed. you got to be fast. And, and that's the, if you, if, you know, Grand Theft Auto 5, I mean, five years, what would they do for five years? I don't see it. It's a great game, but I, didn't, I don't know why it took five years to do that. I mean, you got to go fast. So you're asking me what is there about him? He certainly is smart, and and he's but he's lightning fast, and and he you know and he's you know he kind of created the whole computer graphics stuff for you know I mean single-handedly did that Shooters and Doom, yeah. yeah. It's so, like the advent of 3D graphics cards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and 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 so I would say yeah, he's he's made a huge impact on the industry. You know, without him, who knows where we would be? It'd probably be a little bit different. So. So with Oculus, you're uh, you put the thing together that quickly. Yeah. Um, did did you work on DK one, DK two, and and up including the final sort of yeah shipping version of, of what we got? Well, here was they. I did DK one, and working with a couple people 
so the team at Oculus on DK2, there was the portion that was done, the technical part of the tracking system using the marker, markers and so forth was done by the team there. But the production and manufacturing and overall management of that whole thing and launching DK2 is done by me. And um, so I took, again, took the thing to China and worked with the, with the team factory in China to set up the production. I did all the scheduling, planning, everything. It was a giant project, you know, basically project manager is what yeah. I was doing there. And on CV1, which is the Rift, that, ha that was commencing, but I was always already kind of, and this is in, 2013, I heard we were bought out, and I was already kind of eyeing my exit at that point, so yeah. I didn't see, really see the point of getting in too much involved with the CV1. Uh, DK2, same thing again, it was maybe more like 100 days to get it knocked out. And, uh, but the engineering that went into that prior to that was all, you know, it took a much longer period of time. And you can kind of see the evolution of, of DK2 to CV1 to the Rift. They're, sure. they're pretty similar, you know. So we, we, made, we did a lot of that engineering way back when, and then that just migrated itself into CV1. So, but I, I, this was in March of 2013, uh, was it 2014, and I was already eyeing my way out of there, and uh, I didn't see the point in getting involved with the CV1. I wasn't actually sure how it would do, um, you need a lot of applications. I mean, without content, you know, you got to have content for people to buy it. I, yeah. And I, I wasn't sure what would happen with it. Were so. you, uh, did you, did you do any stuff with the touch controllers that are about to I, release? I should have gotten more involved with that. And I, there, I made a lot of mistakes. One of the mistakes I made there was not keeping a close eye on what was going on with that because that's my area. And and I could have... Yeah, input-output devices. Yeah, That's right. You. And the radio, particularly the radio part. I have a lot of experience with the little radios and the radio controllers. What's amazing about those things, you know, you see those things. You used to see like a PlayStation uh, 3 controller with a dongle you plugged in, you know, and it had yeah. a little radio in it. Those radios are 35 cents <laughs> and in China, and, and it's just amazing. The whole radio, including the board, the antennas, the passive components, everything, 35 cents. And, and it's done. You just have to buy it and put it in there, and I don't have to like work with the with with the protocol and the spread spectrum communications and things. It just works. Uh, I should have I should, probably should have um, leaned in, kept my head in the door a little bit more there, and that's probably a mistake. And when I was working there, I was not doing that because I probably could have guide done provided a little bit more guidance in in that area. Um, but I I think you know it's it's a it's one of those cases where. Um, any mistake that was made early on has, is is a long long ago. Yeah, and it's washed away. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone away. And and you know, stumbling at launch. So what? People stumble all the time at launch. And but really, if it doesn't sell, if the thing is not moving in the public, or is not buying it, it doesn't make any difference what you did in the past. They're going to buy it regardless of what kind of mistakes you made. The fact that a competitor could come along and probably steal fifty percent of the sales. Um, means that we, you know, if we would have launched with, with controllers perhaps, and the thing we could have gotten most of those sales, it's hard to say. I mean, there's there are two different architectures. One is a more of a sitting experience, seated experience, and one was a room experience. It's yeah. very different. Have you have you uh, tried much of either the Vive or and or the PlayStation VR? I, I have I have the Vive, and I played the PlayStation VR. I have a Vive set up at my facility. And I, I love to bring people up there uh, and show it to them. Like you got to, you know, they want to see the cars and the other stuff I'm working on. And I say you got to see the vibe. You got to see yeah. this thing. It's just really incredible. And 
And so that's why I have it set up there. And I, I buy them and give them away. I buy them and, and donate, uh, donate them to people so that, the, so that if you're in a, like a math or a science institute, you've got to have one there so people can see it. And it's a good draw, but you've got to see what you can do with it. Tilt brush or something like playing that, you know, to see what you can actually do with it. Maybe, you know, so. What, what do you as an engineer see as the future of VR? Is it video games or is, it, is video games going to be a footnote in the history of VR compared yeah. to the other sort of applications of, of communication and yeah. uh, tourism, virtual tourism, those kinds of things? You know, uh, if you were to try to produce, if HTC was to produce Vive for scientific applications, it still costs $50,000. It wouldn't sell any of them. So it's got to be a market where everyone's going to want to buy one. Yeah. And what has sold um, most of, of VR? Well, it's the mobile one. You put the, the thing in. Oh, they sold the most of those. So yeah. that looks like that's where it's going to be. Who's ever working on the mobile end of things is probably in the, in the sweet spot. As a gaming platform, I don't, I'm not sure with Unity and Unreal how we really, if we really understand how to write an application for it that doesn't have second, secondary, second-order effects like nausea and other, other aspects of it. And, and how do you write content for it, gaming content, when you're so used to writing uh, FPS or, or you know, first-person shooters or something like that? If you've played a first-person shooter in VR, it's not that great of an experience. I mean, it kind of makes you a little queasy. Yeah. So. So um, it, it would have to be brand new content. I think I think um, the tilt brush one is 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 a, a good demo of what it can be a creative type thing, sculpture or whatever you're going to do, is the kind of application that's that's good for it. Whether or not you can draw people in for hours doing that, I'm not sure you can. So I, you got me on the content part. I, I I'd say it's not necessarily gaming. One thing that you know, um, a couple companies are working on live events, like going to a football game. Uh, that would be a killer, killer app for me, for yeah. sure. And, and selling 10,000 tickets to one seat at the 50-yard line, <laughs> or having, being able to move around the stadium. Let's say you're sitting here, you say, I want to go over to that seat over there, and you push a button, and you're in instantly sitting at that seat at the other end. Imagine people would want to, what people would pay for that, or go to a concert, you know, Bruno Mars, yeah. or Bruno Mars or whatever you want, <laughs> and, and be able to go backstage with him or in the green room. I mean, people would pay huge for that. Yeah. That's, that's probably the best type of content. Now, the infrastructure to do that, that's difficult because you have a spherical camera. You have to be able yeah. to look around, and there's 10,000 people looking in all different <laughs> directions. What, what does the data pipe look like, you know, to get that into the cloud and then down to the consumers with l low latency? That is an unknown. Uh, but if I were working in VR, I would not be building headsets. I would be working on that. Interesting. That's what I would be doing. The social part of it, I'm not sure that's what, how that's going to work either. I, I haven't spent a lot of time, any time in it at all. So, uh, You worked with Palmer Lucky, obviously. Yeah. A guy half your age. He's like two-thirds my age at this yeah. point. He's still an incredibly young guy for yeah. for ways. Uh, did you get along well with him? What's uh, what's it like yeah. working with a with a you know twenty two year old wonderkind while, yeah. you're, while you're trying to build this crazy VR project? You know, I, I see this stuff on the internet about him um, and the stuff that's said, and, and I don't agree with it. He's a he's a nice young man. He's a nice guy. He was always been pleasant to me, and and nice. Um, you know, I have a a son his age, so I have to suppress my parenting uh, stuff when I'm around young people. Like, I want to parent them. Like, I oh, don't do that. Stop doing that. You know, like, your parents talk to you. So I have a tendency to do that to Palmer. But, um, 
and and uh, but you know, I, I I had never had a beef with him. He's a super guy. I I, I just don't. I, there's a lot of um, you know. I think because of the launch of Oculus and the communication, he was like the fulcrum of a lot of negativity that he didn't deserve. And 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 he really is a good guy. And uh, why um, why the message got so screwed up? I don't know. There he's you know. And uh, you know when you're young, you, you kind of uh, you know you were asking me about early on in the interview about what your parents thought. Weren't you worried? Yeah. Well, when your brain isn't all that developed, the consequence part of your brain, like if I do this, I'm going to get shocked. You do it a bunch of times, <laughs> isn't well developed. And, and it, it varies, the amount of time that it takes to happen varies. And, and mine was probably very underdeveloped because I would do that and get shocked and keep going back. <laughs> so, I mean, when you're young like that, you had a tendency to make mistakes, you know, until you learn not to do that. But um, I, I got along with him great, and, and I know him really well. And, and you know, he'd come over to my facility in Livermore, and, and, and meet, we'd meet there. We kind of got the company started there a little bit, and those guys were all in Southern California. But, and then we'd meet customers up there, hang out there. So, yeah, I, I liked him. Uh, did you ever dream of someone buying that company that you were a co-founder of for $2 billion? I wouldn't pay $2 billion for it. <laughs> I'm glad Mark Zuckerberg saw to do that. Um, no, I didn't, but I think he got a first-class team out of it. I really mean that. And, and uh, you know, from the outside looking in, it looks like a lot of mistakes are getting made, but, and perhaps there are, but I, and I have confidence in, in the people there. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, CarMax there. I mean, you know, what can you say? That's, that's, that's first-class... Uh, that's as first class as it gets. Yeah, I've it had is. the pleasure of interviewing him once, and it yeah. was uh, just utterly fascinating to yeah. sit with him. Yeah, he he's uh, he was in a mischief too, I think, quite a bit, and I'm, you know he doesn't do that anymore either. But you know, I had similar background in some ways, and similar generation. He's a little bit younger than me. Uh, he, he he builds rockets. Yeah, he did. He loves Armored. the rockets. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he built Armadillo Aerospace. Yeah, yep. Did. Yeah. Uh, like, I assume, you know, financially, when you're, things are fine, because, you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're a young guy, retired, but when, when the Oculus, when the Facebook check yeah. comes, are you, do you just kind of do a double take? I mean, that's just, yeah. if, you're, if you're on the short list of, of uh, Oculus folks and, yeah. and someone comes along and pays $2 billion for the company, that's got to yeah. be a good day for you, right? It is, yes. Having a lot of money... Um, and it does not buy you happiness. You've heard this, right? Sure. It does not work. And as a matter of fact, it complicates your life. And um, I've sought to simplify my life after that. And you know, I had money before that because I had a business and so forth. But um, it's nice to get that. I'm only comfortable with a certain amount. Any more than that amount, all I have to do is spend my time worrying about it. So I start giving it away. And I've, I've given a lot away to university and, and various places. I've given money to, mostly in education. Yeah, you've, uh, I was going to get to that, you helped build uh, a building at Cal. That's at, right. At Berkeley yeah. campus, the Jacobs Institute for Design Innovation. Yes, that's correct. You helped fund that, fund that building that's, yes. that now is uh, yeah. helping new engineers learn the craft. Well, that's an interesting place, and that's kind of my passion. So I'll talk to you about that. Um, Jacobs Institute is Paul Jacobs from Qualcomm, the CEO of Qualcomm. He's also a Cal alumni, as am I. He's a Cal PhD. Uh, he's the chairman of Qualcomm. Now, um, him, myself, and several other people um, 
put money in to build this facility. And what it is is a maker space. There is, we invite students in to come in and make things. It's like yeah. a giant sandbox. Well, it sounds and, like it's like your garage slash warehouse slash yeah. your sort of workshop. It is. But writ, writ large. And with grades, you get graded, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's what it is. And uh, we have laser cutters, we have um, water jet, we can do, you know, create and build all kinds of things there. And it's for all the students. It's an educational facility, so we're teaching them hand skills, how to use their hands, yeah. how to build things, you know, how to solder, that kind of a place. But there's also a lecture hall upstairs, and there's also a CAD lecture hall in the basement. So that's that kind of, on the first floor, so it's, a, it's that kind of space. So, um, and, and uh, Bjorn Hartman's the guy that's running it. Um, he's a, a, a faculty member at Cal. He's, he's in charge of running it. Is, so it's an in innovation lab, yeah. R&D space, maker space. Yep. Is that what makes, is that sort of what, what makes you happiest these days, sort of passing on that, uh, that, wish, that bug of, of wanting to learn like you have seemed to always have? I, I do mentor companies and I do mentor people who are, who are entrepreneurs on how to build things, how to do it. Often they come to you, I've got a Kickstarter campaign and I've sold 10,000 pieces, whatever it is. I can tell them exactly how to produce it, what regulations you have to be uh, you know, aware of, what you know, FCC, toy safety, all of those things you, you know, globally, how to manage and do that, right. I know how to do that, and as well as the engineering. And so I can teach them and offload that. So to answer your question, I'm willing to do that and I ha have been doing that. Are they willing to listen? Often no, they don't really <laughs> listen to you. But that's the kind of thing I like to do. I do have a large knowledge base and, and I have a large knowledge base of consoles like how internal parts work and the operating system, all those things. And I, and I try to offload that stuff when I meet people. And, and especially young people. So yeah, I think there's there's some work that I can do there. Where do you what do you see gaming headed? I mean, VR is being introduced. We're seeing these uh, more and more powerful PC-like yeah. consoles. Uh, it, do you think is is you know Westworld is a big topic right now? Mm -hmm. Is are we are we 50 years away from Westworld being the the final form of video games? You know. Uh, it's got to be a three, four hundred dollar console, so that you're kind of strapped to that. <laughs> when you get above that price point, people, stuff doesn't move. It doesn't sell very well. Yeah. It's got to be in that sweet spot. I think it, to answer your question, I think it plays to what demographic there is who's buying it. So, if if your demographic are older people, they generally can spend more money. Right. But do they play video games? Pure video games, not so much. They might be into other kinds of content. So. I, I just, you know, I think it's going to be on consoles, video games, for, for a long time. And that the whole system, the infrastructure is set up to publish and sell games on a, on a, on a console watched on a television. So, um, out, of, out of everything you've worked on, uh, all these games, all these peripherals, what's your favorite thing? Is there a favorite thing? Is there one that stands out that, like, man, that was my favorite project to work on? Yeah. Um, it, it, it wasn't Oculus and it wasn't Guitar Hero. I didn't, I liked those things. It wasn't the favorite. I, I would have to say the virus stuff that I was doing yeah. back then. Yeah, hacking and virus and... Was it because of the unpredictability of it? Uh, no, because I could use my creativity. I'm kind of locked into to doing uh, whatever, you know, if I'm working for a company we're going to produce a headset, it's going to be the headset. Right. You know, I, and I may have some influence on it, but 
I, I would have to say it would be that. And, being, and then watching virus scan, there used to be something called McAfee still around, but other virus scanning programs could not find this thing. And it lived happily and freely inside there. As a matter of fact, when they got loaded, it would go away and then come back when they were unloaded. Oh, man. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and also just the whole uh, thing that I went through early on with Windows NT and working in Windows, particularly in the kernel mode stuff, I really enjoyed that because you know, I could kind of do what I want and I wasn't constrained and I, you know, so that, that would have to be the thing I would say my favorite. Producing those computer peripherals and manufacturing them was more hardship than fun. It's just very tough. But I did it because it paid well and sure. I, could, I knew how to do it, so. It sounds to me like you, the, the more creativity you had, the, the happier you are. Yeah. You, you didn't, you don't, you didn't like being sort of fit into a no. a, a box and given given those artificial I walls. Yeah, I, I think that um, had I gone to Facebook, I probably would not be all that happy. It just it wouldn't work well for me for a lot of reasons. Or, I do work at other. I mean, I worked for Microsoft for a long time, so I can work other big companies. But there's certain things that I just know won't work, yeah. and I don't I don't go there. Um, the other thing that I like to do was to reverse engineer things. I would buy a peripheral like a Sony peripheral or a Nintendo peripheral, and I would completely reverse engineer it, the protocol, everything. Yeah. I'd build a sniffer box for it to sniff the packets and put them into a computer so I could study them, and then I would replicate that and produce huh. the chip. It's I like doing that. That was fun for me. <laughs> That's cool. And then, then test it out and watch whether it would work, and, and if it didn't work, then go back and work on it some more. And I just, I know that's not particularly creative, but for me, that was fun. Well, and, and then that goes into the knowledge base you were just talking that's about right. earlier that you can use, you can apply to, to other endeavors. That, right? That's right. I would just take, I mean, literally walk into Red Octane and then very quickly produce a guitar. When someone else coming in there had not done it, would spend months on it, six months. I would have it done in like four or five days, just completely finished. Uh, so the last question I have for you, Jack, I'm curious. Uh, you've authored a number of research papers in the field of AI. That's right, yeah. And so uh, I am very curious where you stand on the issue of, of AI and, uh, and whether you, do you, are you with Elon Musk and thinking that we need to have sort of a consortium here and, mm -hmm. and work to get all the bright minds need to work together yeah. to make sure it's not going to turn into Skynet and murder us all? Or, yeah. or are you in the... Let it go. Let's 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 see where it develops on its own, kind of thing. Well, it's a broad term. It applies to a lot of different things. You go to AI at Berkeley, maybe a different AI at you know Chicago or USC. It just depends upon where you are um, and who's teaching it. I I I to to learn AI. I took extension courses through UC Berkeley. This is. 15 years ago, I started yeah. taking extension courses, and luckily I found some that taught it. So there's like neural networks and genetic algorithms. Um, I'm not an expert in either one of those. I am an expert in one particular area, and that's called fuzzy logic. And fuzzy logic is taking incomplete information and making a complete decision based on incomplete information. That's what it is. Hmm. So I wrote a paper and built a fuzzy logic uh, controller for a camera that could control the camera. It's a, it was a Russian a gun camera, but it was being converted. It was a really high-quality camera with high-quality optics for commercial use. They had probably a million of these or whatever they were, yeah. and so I was converting them. And so I did it all with fuzzy logic. Um, to answer your question on Elon Musk, I don't think you can replace the human mind. It, it's just it has a, you have a soul, and your soul is embedded in your mind, and your spirit is. And you may not believe that, but I think it is. 
and you can't just create that artificially. I, guess, I suppose if you were, you know, like in 2001 Space Odyssey, they kind of created a soul and a persona, but I don't think you can actually create that. There's too many neurons, you know, there's too many connections, and, and it, I just don't think it works. But for basic problems like routing problems, like figuring out how to route traffic and things like that, and having it, doing it autonomously and, and dynamically and adjusting it, it's perfect for things right, like that. Right, the self-driving car. Things like, things like that, or, or figuring out a routing problem on a semiconductor chip. I'm not saying it's done with AI, but that's the perfect thing for it to do because it, it's adaptive and can learn. Um, you know, I hear this term, deep learning. I don't even know what that means, really. But it, it means, maybe it means many things, but I, when, I hear, when I hear buzzwords like that, I want to scream because I don't, I've never heard a clear definition of what that is. I think what it means is to be able to learn uh, and adapt uh, uh, you know, learn to be able to learn and adapt, and and grow and evolve with it. If that's deep learning, but I hear that all the time, and I, I just I don't know what it means. So you're not you're not worried about a Skynet situation and the machines yeah. declaring nuclear war on humanity. Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, okay, good. yeah, <laughs> you feel better because <laughs> you're way smarter than me. So no, I I I I mean I could conceive a situation where an errant computer program could get the wrong cues and accidentally launch nuclear missiles, but I don't think humans would ever let a computer program be in charge of that. It always has to be a decision maker with judgment and and those things to push the button. So, <laughs> well, uh, on that note, Jack McCauley, the uh, creator of the scrolling mouse wheel, co-creator of USB, uh, the designer of the Guitar Hero controllers. Uh, guitars and, of course, the uh, Oculus VR headset as well. Thank you so much. I, I had Thank an you. absolute blast talking to you about this. Appreciate it. Your incredible. I, I just love the breadth of your career and the the fascinating uh, areas you've you've had an effect on yeah, in, in this world. So thank you so much for coming. Right. And uh, that wraps up another episode of IGN Unfiltered. Tune back each and every single month for a uh, new interview with uh, one of the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game field. And for more on all things in the world of video games, you're already in the right place right here at IGN. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.